Today's scripture reading is from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I haven't made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is the reading of God's word. Well, it's good to see everyone as Pastor Francis has uh, graciously allowed me to have the pulpit. It's good to see probably probably about 40% of you. I mean, it's good to see all of you, but I've only, looks like, no, about 40% of you. And, you know, as Pastor Francis has shared, uh, Sojourner uh, Presbyterian Church is uh, one of the first churches I had the privilege of being able to serve and to fumble along and continue to make mistakes, but it was a bright and vibrant community, and it seems since those days that the Lord was wise and pulling me away from the church so the church can continue to thrive and grow in the way that it is, and so it just feels like a different church in many ways, but it's a joy to be back here to share God's word, and I'm excited to see what the Lord has to reveal to us in his book of Philippians. So thank you for having me. Glad to be here. And if we haven't met, we'd love to meet you after service and to, to get to know the congregation of this church. And as we begin this new year, which quite honestly, I forgot that this was the first Sunday of the year, I wanted to share a couple of thoughts from the letter of Philippians and the passage that we just read. And if you don't know anything about Philippians, you may be familiar or recognize that the letter of Philippians is unique because it's full of joy. There, the word sin is not anywhere in Philippians. Paul loved all the churches that he planted, but Philippians, I think, was very special in his heart. It's a lot of endearing affection, a lot of terms of endearment. It's a lot of intimate connection. He valued them. He loved them. He cherished them. And it was a partnership that they had together to propagate the gospel, which I think is very relevant to Sojourner, because if you're visiting for the first time, I want to welcome you, but this church here exists to know Jesus and to make, his, make him known here in Burton County and in Hackensack. And they do that in a way that's spirit-filled and gospel-centered, but the letter of Philippians sort of models that. And I've chosen this passage in the verses that I've read because the Apostle Paul will reveal to us and share with you and I today how you can actually think about your life as you begin this year, 2024. And he does this by using an analogy and saying, the life that you and I live is really like a race. And typical Apostle, the Apostle Paul, he is able to apply and bring out the beauty of the gospel from different points and perspectives. And before the verses that we've read, the Apostle Paul, he's trying to show you the beauty of the gospel, but he does it from a different perspective, and he does it with a perspective of an accountant. He's doing it from a general ledger. He's doing it from a profit and loss statement. And he wants you to see the surpassing worth of Jesus. So in verses 7 to 11, just to give you a taste of this, in verse 7, he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. 
Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then in verse 8, for his sake I have suffered the loss that I count them as rubbish that I may gain Jesus. So he's putting on a financial perspective, giving you a financial perspective on the gospel to say that Jesus is much more worthy, much more valuable, much more vibrant than anything this world has to offer. And then he transitions into the verses that I've read to show you a different perspective of the gospel. And he says, okay, I'm not just going to give you a financial perspective. I'm going to give you an athletic perspective. I'm going to put on, take off my, put off my calculator, and I'm going to put on my running shoes. And he moves from being an accountant to talking like a runner and says, life is like a race. And if you didn't know this, actually, the race metaphor is peppered throughout the Bible. It's not unique to Paul. So the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you know that in a race all the runners run? 2 Timothy 4, 7, he said, I have fought the good fight, which is another MMA boxing metaphor, but he says, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So it's absolutely a metaphor for life, but what the Bible wants you and I to understand in the beginning of this year is that the Christian race is more a marathon and not a sprint, even though there's moments in which you sprint. And so we're going to take a look at our lives here today from the lens of Philippians and to understand our lives as a race. We're going to do this from an astronaut point of view. We're going to take a distant view from beginning to end of our lives and help us to see where we are today and how the gospel can speak into the circumstances that you may be in here in the beginning of 2024. Because Paul absolutely is talking about a race. Verse 12, he says, I press on to make it my own. Verse 13, forgetting what lies behind, I'm straining forward. Verse 14, I press on for the goal of the prize. So he's talking about this race. He's pushing forward. He's pressing on. There's a prize. There's a finish. And he's going to forget everything in his past. And so today, I want us to dialogue about this. Maybe we could kind of discuss this. This race, just three perspectives, three points, three thoughts about this race. One, we'll look at the beginning of the race. Secondly, the middle. And then third, the ending. Or you could think, how do you start this race of life? How do you run this race of life? And how do you finish the race of life? And more specifically, what Paul, Paul does for us, he says, you began this race with one humility. You run the race by forgetting the past, and you finish the race by keeping your eyes on the prize. Humility, amnesia, and prize. So let's look at this together first. How do you begin the race? Now, some of you may be thinking, I'm already in my twilight years looking towards retirement, but it doesn't mean that you can't start the race again today. How do you begin? And verse 12 tells us, it says this, now that I have already obtained this, or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, the way you start the race is right there in the first part of verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this. I'm not perfect. And one way you could capture that concept is that Paul is saying, you begin the race with humility. He says, I'm imperfect. You're imperfect. We're imperfect. Now, why that's so profound is because the apostle Paul is saying this that he himself 
in the twilight years of his ministry career, the greatest missionary, the greatest preacher, the greatest church planner, the greatest theologian, wrote the most number of letters in the New Testament. He is a spiritual giant. Even he says, while in Roman imprisonment, hey guys, I'm not perfect. I'm not there yet. I haven't already obtained this. I haven't reached this. And that this in verse 12 is really a reference to verse 10, 11. He says, I haven't reached this. And that this in 10, 11 is the fullness of Christian life. 10 to 11 says that I may know him and the power of resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, become like him, that any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. He says, I haven't fully known Jesus. I haven't experienced the fullness of his power. I haven't shared fully in his sufferings, and I'm not fully like him in his death and humility. Now, Paul is saying this. He's already been shipwrecked. He's been hurting. He's been diseased. He had a thorn in his side. And he says, I haven't fully experienced the vibrancy of Christian life. And if the Apostle Paul can say that, then I think you and I could also consider maybe we have to humble ourselves and say, hey, as good-looking as you are, as accomplished as you are, as gifted as you are, it may help you to start this race with humility and say, you know what? I haven't arrived yet. I'm not there yet. I haven't obtained it. I'm not perfect. And Paul is speaking into very critical, heretical understandings in the church of Philippi because there are actually two groups that thought they were perfect, that they made it. The first group is called the Judaizers, which basically said, through their ceremonial law, through their dietary habits, through circumcision, the way they practice forgiveness, Judaizers, this sort of Jewish perspective on religion, actually thought they were perfect. They literally thought they could be clean and holy and righteous through their performance and through their works. And the second group of people who thought they arrived were called the Gnostic dualists. So you have the religious people on one end, and you have the irreligious people on the other end. You have the works-oriented people that says, through my works, I can be perfect. Then you have licentious people that says, I can live up in the passions of the now. I could indulge in the passions of my heart. And there's a way that I can still be perfect from Gnostic dualist. And Gnostic dualist is just a fancy word to say they understand life in a duality. And they basically say, the spirit is what matters. And what you do through the body, it doesn't really matter. The body is actually dirty. It's irrelevant. The goal of life is to attain to a higher existence through your spirit so that your body is relegated to the world that is irrelevant. That's why they can indulge in their passions and they can satisfy the cravings of the heart and they could do whatever they want because it was irrelevant and didn't matter because their soul is not tainted and they're still perfect. So for the religious people and the irreligious, the Judaizers and the hedonistic Gnostic dualists, the Apostle Paul is saying, hold up, hold your horses. Both of you are still not perfect. I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. I haven't obtained this. You haven't obtained this either. And the key to being able to do this, I think, is what Paul says. I haven't arrived yet. It's humility. As good as I think I am, I'm not fully there, and I haven't reached the perfection of this in the fullness of knowing Jesus. You see, friends, it's not just Christians and religious people that think humility is the key to life. And I don't know where you are. You might be a skeptic. You might not really believe in Jesus kind of discovering Christianity, you want to see what it has to offer. Well, I think it has to offer a lot, so maybe we could dialogue about that. But non-Christians also believe, and secular atheists also believe, that humility 
is a key to life. Even in this one think tank at Berkeley University in California, it's called the greater good. They're trying to find the intersection between physiology and sociology. And they say in this one article how humility will make you the greatest person ever. This is a non-Christian, secular, scientific perspective, how humility will make you the greatest person ever. So it's not just Christians, but also humans. And in this article, they basically say, in the researchers, they define humility with this concept of the quiet ego, but it's basically the same construct of humility. And this research and their study suggests that when you gain a quiet ego, a self-effacing ego, you begin to act less aggressively. You, let, you manipulate others a little bit less. You express dishonesty less, less likely to destroy resources. Instead, you take responsibility for and correct your mistakes. You listen to others' ideas, and you keep our abilities in humble perspective. They even say, apart from Jesus, just a human, atheistic perspective that humility can make you a great person and give you all that. Gandhi himself says, I claim to be a simple individual, liable to errors like any other mortal man. I own, however, that I have humility enough to confess my errors and to retrace my steps. So you have this sort of modern-day secular perspective that humility is great, and you have this pietistic religious icon of Gandhi that says humility is also key to life. But Paul says, you know what? The real key to life, if we can all agree that humility is needed, he's saying only Christianity and the gospel can give it. You know, sociology, science, it's helpful. It helps us to understand the world, but it can't give you real humility like Jesus. Gandhi, even though he says this, it's really couched in pietistic sort of Eastern mysticism. But the only real way to get humility is through what Paul says in the gospel of grace. Grace, to say that I'm worthy, but Jesus has died for me and redeemed me and saved me. Because verse 10, Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The reason that Paul is humble is because he understood that his life was about what Jesus has done for me, that Jesus was his sense of worth. Jesus was his forgiveness. Jesus was his sense of fulfillment in his heart. See, verse 10 pushes you to ask this question so that you could get to humility. The question is to ask not who am I. The question is to ask whose am I? Who are you owned by? And this is something completely unique to Christianity because all other religions and all other atheistic philosophies will basically say that if you want to be somebody, you have to be the first mover you have to earn it, you have to get good grades, you have to earn a lot of money, which, by the way, is fantastic and wonderful, but you can't manufacture yourself, you can't create an identity for yourself, but that's what the world teaches. Every other religion, atheism, agnosticism, secularism, every perspective essentially says you're the first mover. In order to make yourself a somebody, you got to move first, but Christianity is the only religion, the only perspective, the only worldview that says you're not the first mover because you'll never actually create anything of yourself. God is the first mover in his son, Jesus. That's why Paul says, I press on to make it my own, his relationship with Jesus, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's owned by him, defined by him, sustained by him, recalibrated by him. And that's why the scholar Dallas Willard said, the greatest saints 
are not those who need less grace, but those who consume more grace. Grace to them is like breath. See, Paul says he made the gospel's relationship with Jesus deeply personal. You want the key to humility? Well, it's not going to be through understanding physiology alone. It's not going to be just some pietistic Eastern mysticism. It's going to be through receiving the gospel, hearing the message of Jesus that he owns you on a deep personal level because even Paul says, I have made it my own. Personally, have you made Jesus your own this morning on a personal level? That he is my savior, he is my king, he is my Lord. One pastor in a blog once wrote, not just that, his favorite time of the day was coming home from work, and when he came home from work, he would open the door, and his three-and-a-half-year-old daughter would run after to her daddy every day at the end of work when he walks through the door. And every day this pastor writes, I come home, she runs to me, grabs my leg, screams with delight, daddy, 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 my daddy is home. And he's writing about this because he says, my daughter caused me to think about something, about the precious nature of the personal pronoun. Daddy is great, but my daddy is even better because it communicates ownership, possession, and the uniqueness of relationship. Even in my life, there's only two people in the world that can call, say, my daddy. And those are my two daughters. But this pastor's saying, my daughter's expressing that out of all the dads out there, I am the one who belongs to her. And she is the one who belongs to me as my daughter. All of this in the little pronoun, my Because you know this famous reformer Martin Luther once said that the Christian faith is a matter of personal pronouns. The richest personal pronouns in scripture denote a dual ownership between you and God. We belong to God, God belongs to us. We are his people and he is our God. God's people are his inheritance and God is the inheritance of the people. That's why Luther has once said, read with great emphasis the words me or for me, and accustom yourself to accept and to apply yourself this me with certain faith because the words our, us, for us, they ought to be written in golden letters. And the man who doesn't understand the power of the personal pronoun, according to Luther, may not even be Christian at all. See, that's the challenge of the Christian faith before we go to point two. You hear the wonders of the gospel. Jesus forgives you. He gives you help. He heals you. He brings community. He has a a hope that the world can't take away. And you're always thinking, that person needs to hear the gospel. That person needs to hear the gospel. And that person. But when the Holy Spirit hits and when the truth of the gospel comes, and all of a sudden, it's no longer you need this, you need this, and you need this, but all of a sudden, you feel, wait, that gospel is for me. And I need this. That's when the penny will drop, and that's where humility began to flesh it out because you press on to make that relationship yours because Jesus has made you his. That's why Paul says, I make it my own, the personal pronoun. Gandhi can't live up to that. Berkeley think tanks can't live up to that. Judaizers can't live up to that. Licentious, hedonistic, dualist livers can't live up to that. If the only religion 
Christianity that says Jesus will make you his own personally and intimately. And that'll lead you to humility in your relationships and your perspectives on work. That'll help you to think less of yourself and more of others. That'll help you to be less consumed by your own personal preferences and be consumed by how other people would want things. And that's how you begin the race. But this leads us to our second. Once you start off and come off the starting line in humility, well, how do you run this race? Verses 13 to 14 show us, but they basically repeat verse 12. So let me read 13 to 14. It says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. And so essentially, I want to say this. In verse 13, he says, You run this race by forgetting what lies behind and moving forward towards the goal. Now, some of you may be thinking, if you're following me, you're saying, aren't we supposed to think about the past? Aren't memories important? Isn't nostalgia okay? And don't get me wrong, it's absolutely okay. You know, Paul is just very specific. You're right, it's okay to remember things. You have to remember things. Remembrance actually brings a lot of joy in life. Paul even shows that he remembers the past himself, because in verses 4 to 6, he tells about his past. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul remembers all his hard work. 2 Corinthians 11, he recalls and remembers all the beatings and suffering he went through. Even to remember the gospel, that happened in the past. So it's not to forget everything in the past. There's something more to this, I think, because Paul's smarter than that. He's more in tune with life. He's not saying forget everything in the past. When you proposed, your first date, getting into school, getting a promotion, enjoying fireworks, looking at the stars, experiencing different cultures, restaurants, you know, you're supposed to cherish those because it enriches life. So when Paul says forgetting what lies in the past, he's not talking about memory amnesia. He's talking about something different. So what is he really getting at? What Paul is trying to say is that you're not have to, you're supposed to have memory amnesia He's just saying that, in, this is really in the Greek, forgetting what lies in the past means that everything in the past, both your successes and also your failures, both things you celebrate, both things and things that decimated you, nothing in the past should define you. Does that make sense? The things in the past can shape you, but they're not meant to identify and define you because sometimes you and I do this. Some of us have gone through really deep emotional traumatic experiences and we can't get from the past. We still feel like we're hung up on the past. Our relationships and our family or our parents, mistakes that we've made, and we always feel like we're not good enough or we're not clean enough. And you're traumatized and you can't get past the mistakes and the suffering that you had in the past. Others of you can't get past your past because it's the good old days and you sort of feel like you're in midlife crisis and that's why the apostle, not apostle Paul, but Paul Tripp has once said, once you're a college graduate, you're more like an astronaut because the world ahead of you is exciting and is your oyster. But when you become 50 years old or 60 or maybe even 40s, you become not an astronaut but an archaeologist. And you're looking back in life trying to dig up things to make your life relevant and say those are the good old days and that's what defines you. And Paul is saying whether your successes or whether your accomplishments and your, your sin or your brokenness, neither actually should define you. They can shape you, but they shouldn't drag you down like an anchor. 
And some of you, honestly, are probably stuck in the past, whether it's the good old days or whether it's the trauma, understandably, or the sins of the past, you can't move forward. They hold you down. Understandably, they hold you down. The darkness of your past, the successes of your past. Paul's saying, you want to run this race? You got to look forward and not be defined backward. You're identified more of who you will be in Jesus, not of who you once were without Jesus. Because if you are defined by your past, then your life will begin to crumble and it won't ultimately survive. Some of you may have known this, this girl by the name of Madison Holleran. She actually went to high school somewhere in central Jersey, went to the University of Pennsylvania. She was a track star as well as a soccer star, got a track scholarship, and went to UPenn. But on the morning of January 17, 2014, if you know her story, it says that she awoke in her dorm room at UPenn, spent the previous night watching the movie The Parent Trap with her good friend, Ingrid. She went to class, took a test, told a few friends to meet up later. Then she went to the Penn bookstore and bought some gifts for her family. And those gifts were the ones that she would eventually leave for her family on top of a parking garage. Because at that night, she went to the top of the parking structure. She looked over on the top floor, and this track star, Madison Holleran, ran her last race as she ran off of the parking garage and structure over the ledge, plummeting to her death. She was 19 years old. Her book was, I think, a bestseller. It was called What Made Maddie Run? Well, I had a lot of baggage and a lot of hurt, a lot of mental health issues that we could talk about and be aware of. But I think for us, what Paul is saying is that it doesn't want to minimize the pain or minimize your success. He's challenging us to say, what makes you run? And it shouldn't be your past. It could shape you, it could celebrate it, but it shouldn't identify you. It should be, we forget the past in terms of what defines you so you could run forward. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones has once said when he used to be a pastor, he says the problem here is the case of those who are miserable and those who are suffering from spiritual depression because of their past. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, one of the greatest pastors that ever were. Either because of some particular sin in the past or because of some particular form in which sin happened to make a case, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I would, weigh, I would say that in my experience in ministry, which was decades, how many years that may have been, it is the most difficult, the most common difficulty, and the most constantly recurring that he had to deal with more people over this one particular reality of not getting over their past mistakes and sins than anything else in his congregation. The challenge for us is to say, what makes you run? What defines you? And Paul is saying it should be the prize ahead of you. You forget what lies behind the past in terms of something that's paramount or foundational or identifies you, but you move forward because you're a new creation. You have a new perspective. You have a new life. You look up in the sky with new eyes. 
that both achievements and failures are something you learn from and can celebrate, but not anything that they're supposed to establish your identity. Because the mature way to think about life according to Paul in 13 to 14, forgetting what lies behind, straining towards the future, pressing towards the prize. Did you realize that forgetting and straining and pressing, they're all present tense verbs. It's a constant every day, forgetting what lies behind, straining towards the hope of the future, pressing on towards the prize. That's when you would get and only get true joy and fulfillment that life will come through the present tense pursuit of Jesus Christ by forgetting what lies behind, straining toward and pressing on towards the prize. Just like a relay race. I, when I was in the fifth grade, I was going to Westover Elementary School over in Toms River, New Jersey. You know, a small school, so it don't have to be that athletic to be chosen for the basketball team or the relay race. So I was one of the faster kids, so I was chose for the four-man relay race. And if you know anything about the four-man relay race, you know that you put your, your best and fastest runners in the first leg and then the fourth leg. So they put me on the second leg. And as I ran this second leg, in a cold, like, fall, almost like wintry, wintry morning, I was shivering. I was a little bit under the weather. I was sick. My nose was runny. Kept coughing and sneezing. I wanted to do my part and do the best I could as a second leg of this relay race. So the first kid who's good, took off well, was in first place, hands off the baton to me. We started slowly moving back from first place to like third place. But I remember as I was running, trying to keep my eye on the prize into the third leg, that my snot just kept coming out, and my tears and my eyes started tearing up, and my throat started hurting. But I was like, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to press on. I'm going to throw everything to the side. I'm going to throw my tears aside. I'm going to cough to the side. The snot that's coming out of my mouth, I'm going to throw it to the side. I'm going to push it to the left and to the right in order to move forward. And the Apostle Paul is saying something like that. He's saying there's a lot of tears in life. There's a lot of sickness in life. There's a lot of snot in life. But you've got to toss that all to the side, not because it's unimportant, but it's not really what defines you, what should be your foundational marker. It's the prize ahead of you. You've got to press on towards the goal by the grace and the power of Jesus. That's why this professor from Westminster, California, Dennis Johnson, has said this about the passage. The point is not about phonetic activity when you run the race. It's not about which activities, but why you do the activities that you do. Because there's many different tracks that you run, many different races that all of you are involved in. And you've got to throw the things aside. You've got to throw your snot and throw your saliva and throw your sickness you got to throw your tears to the side and press on by the grace of Jesus towards the goal that he's given you. Some of you are running the racetrack of marriage. Some of you in parenting. Some of you are the track race of career. Some of you the track race of dating. Some of you the track race of sickness in the family. All of you have different track races. And Paul is saying, if you want to run this well, keep your eyes ultimately on the prize and press on by the grace of Jesus because your future and your identity in Jesus is what defines you. So there are many different tracks that you're running, according to Dennis Johnson, whether you're a mom or a student or an engineer or a plumber 
a friend, or perhaps a father, or maybe even a child. But what makes a difference in the world is not the activity or race that you're on as much as how you ran the race and how the gospel instills significance in what you do. So you come off the race with humility. You run this race by pressing forward towards the prize. Don't let anything hold you back. And this leads us to our last point. What is actually the prize that he's talking about? What is this prize? Well, you may have heard of this well-known race in 1923 between competing track teams of Scotland and France. They were both tied. They're both neck and neck in the races. And on one of the last races, the 440, the runners were racing down shoulder to shoulder, making the first turn. One of the runners pushed to the ground, and he fell off the track. He was down and then got up again to run 20 meters behind, running as hard as he could, kicking his knees as high as he could, his head back, flying down the track towards the finish line until he emerged as the winner. And this race was memorialized in the movie Chariots of Fire. He ran the race, and Eric Liddell has says, I feel God's pleasure, and he won the prize. So what is the prize for you and I? How do we run so that we can see that the gospel instills significance, so we feel God's pleasure, no matter what race that we're in? Well, I've already mentioned it, but the prize is there right there in verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. He says that at the end of the day, it's this calling to follow God in Christ Jesus. It's a relationship with him and all the heavenly blessings and the glory that he gives you. See, the only thing that can fulfill your heart even now is not necessarily going to be love or work and all these other good realities. That could fill your heart temporarily, but it's never going to fully fill your heart the way that Jesus could for the upper prize of upper call in Jesus Christ. See, what this tells us is that everyone in life lives for something outside of us. Every one of you has to recognize that you're living and you're running this life and there's a prize ahead of you. Part of it is just to be aware and to acknowledge it. There's something that you're running for. It could be love. It could be success. It could be money. It could be accomplishments. Who knows? It could be comfort. It could be power. There's everything that you're looking for because everything that you think you're accomplishing, whether it's success in your jobs or whether it's going to be money, that's just a means to the end. But you have to look deeper and say, what am I really looking for? If you're running for money, sometimes you want money because it gives you influence or you want money because it gives you comfort or you want money because it gives you experiences. And it's really worldliness and materialism that you're running for. If you want power, it's not just power in itself. What does power do for you? Power is a prize that you're running for because power could be the reality that you love telling people what to do. You feel like a somebody. You love control. So the challenge is to say, what are you running for? What is the prize in your life? Because Paul is saying, if you live and run this race with any other prize than Jesus, then you're going to run off the track and decimate your life. See, one way to understand this is basically idolatry. That's what Paul is trying to say at. It's okay to pursue things all you can for sports and academics. You should pursue everything that you can, but behind everything that you do, your work, your comfort, your money, your academics, your relationships, experiencing different cultures, behind everything that you do should really be the prize of God. You understand that? See, let me try to explain it this way. Now, Augustine, this one theologian, has says that actually the essence of sin 
is a disordered love. See, some of you and I think that actually the essence of sin is loving the wrong things. But what Augustine is saying is that sin is not loving the wrong things. Sin, oftentimes for you and me, is loving the right things too much. We love the right things out of order. So for example, some of you just oversimplistically, if you're running for actually money, then money is your peak and that's your prize. That's gonna dictate an overflow into every aspect or arena of your life. You'll look at people as networkers. You'll look at people with dollar signs and money bags. If money is your real prize, then everything is gonna be basically a general ledger because that's your God and it flows over to everything else. If power is going to be what you're ultimately running for as a prize, everything else is gonna filter in and pour over into that life of power. People are gonna be viewed as not as people to love, but people to control. Moving up and success is not just to influence for the gospel, but it's really to have more people under your control to tell them what you want to do. Because if you're running for the goal of the prize of power, it filters in and overflows into every aspect of your life. But then Augustine is right. He's saying that's a disordered love. You got to love God first and not put anything else in his place. And when you love Jesus first, then Jesus as king overflows in your life. Then you think about money and how Jesus used money. Then you can think about love and how Jesus talks about dating and relationships and parenting and family. If you actually put power, then Jesus says, well, I'm going to talk about power because power in the gospel paradigm is not about power accumulation, but about power distribution. Money is not about accumulating all this wealth for your comfort and influence, but to accumulate this wealth so that money can come to you but not stay with you, but flow through you to go out there into the world. Even love and relationships. Romance is not to fulfill the desires of your heart, but it's to reflect the love that Jesus has in the church. So that's why Paul says when you're running this life, you have to ask yourself, if you feel like you're limping along in this race, maybe it's because you're putting your eyes on the wrong prize. But if you put it on the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that'll overflow and will harmonize everything in your life. Because the essence of sin is not necessarily that we love the wrong things. You can love dating and marriage. You can love academics and success. You can love vacation and comfort. But the essence of sin is loving the right things in the wrong order. So Paul wants to reorient and calibrate your heart. Love Jesus first and let that overflow into every other part of your life. That's our goal. That's our prize. That's the heavenly blessing of worshiping and dwelling with Jesus. Because C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, captures this prize very well. He articulates it clearly. The promises of Scripture may very roughly be reduced to five realities of this prize. First, that we should be with Jesus. Secondly, that we should be like Jesus. Thirdly, we'll have a wealth of imagery and the glory of Jesus. Fourthly, that we should be entitled and entertained and find fulfillment in Jesus. And finally, because of Jesus, we will have an official position in the universe that Jesus has created. Everything that we strive for in this world, community, relationships, power, recognition, respect, everything that we strive for are the scraps of what we get, according to Lewis, in the upper calling Christ, that we have all of that but better in a way that is unimaginable. And if you run for that, 
surprised. And you'll be running very well. And at the end of the day, as I come to a close, the reason that we can live and to run this race is because someone else has already ran this race before us and made us his own. In Hebrews 12, 1 to 2, the author says, Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus blazed a path for us. He ran the track race for us. We're just crossing over his steps. And if you think about this, why does it say in verse 2 that Jesus ran this race for the joy that was set before him? Because Jesus' race was glory, but before glory was the cross. He was going to be condemned, crucified, rejected by his people and by his father. Why in the world would the author of Hebrews say that Jesus, looking towards the cross, which is in modern-day terms looking at the death chair, or in similar language, looking for punishment for suspension, or as a kid looking towards mom and dad about to get disciplined or spanked, why would we ever look towards that with joy? Why did Jesus do this? Because in history and in time, Jesus looked towards the cross, and after he was obedient, he would have something after enduring the cross that he didn't have before in time and history. Do you know what that was? You and me. The joy set before Jesus wasn't just bringing God the glory. Surely that was, but he's saying that there's something that he would finally secure once and for all that he didn't have before that he will have secured after he went to the cross. And what did he secure? You and me family, brothers and sisters, co-heirs, forever and eternity. And that's the race that we run. That's what Jesus has done, and he has done the work for us. He's shown us how this race is, because the pathway, according to Jesus, the pathway to resurrection comes through the pathway of crucifixion. The pathway of exaltation comes through the pathway of humiliation. The pathway of glorification comes through the pathway of incarnation. And that's what Jesus has shown us in his race for the joy that was set before us. So as we begin this new year, friends, I pray that we could blast off this year with humility. I pray that we could press on to know Jesus and forgetting what lies behind us. I pray that we will see the prize before us that's been secured for us in Jesus, given to you by taste, even today, by faith in him, that we could run this race called life. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that you have allowed us to continue to gather together and to worship you. And Father, we love you with our hearts. We want to worship you, and we want to reflect the goodness of who you are. We want to experience all the promises that the Bible gives us. We want to be faithful to your scripture. And God, we just want to be your family and to be your community, your bride, and your children. Lord, help each and every one of us as we begin this year with all the baggage that we have carried from the past, even if it takes years to get past from our past, Lord, we pray that by your grace and by your truth, we would run this race well. 
all to the glory of your name. We thank you so much and praise in Jesus Christ. Amen.